Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Song Stories, a new iHeartRadio podcast where we try to figure out how do you make a hit? To answer this not-so-simple question, we're sitting down with some of the biggest names in music. They're going to take us through the life cycle of a song, from studio to stage and everything in between. My name's Jordan Runtog. Thank you so much for joining us. By now, you're no doubt aware that we're talking to Phineas, the singer, songwriter, and producer extraordinaire. So far, the interviews we've shared were recorded shortly after he released his solo debut, Optimist, in the fall of 2021. The timing of the conversations gave him perspective on the project, allowing him the opportunity to make insights on themes and emotions that aren't always apparent when you're hard at work. But on the other hand, it's also interesting to hear from an artist in the midst of their creative process, to hear firsthand about their emotional state, in addition to the challenges and even doubts they face in the studio. So with this in mind, I'd like to share with you an interview I did with Phineas in the fall of 2020 for another show I host called Inside the Studio. At the time, Phineas was busy working on his first full length, as well as testing the waters with an EP, Blood Harmony. The talk will add a new dimension to the previous interviews you've heard with Phineas on this show, and he's just as engaging, fascinating, and funny as ever. I hope you enjoy. Phineas, how are you? I'm good. It's uh, it's been raining ash in Los Angeles. I don't know where where you're calling me from, but um, it's been <laughs> just. It looks like your Blood Harmony cover, really. It, I wish it was that pretty. It's it's just <laughs> this kind of smoky gray. It's very depressing and sort of alarming. But um, like we've been indoors. A lot of people have com- been comparing the weather to like Blade Runner, like all the orange skies and Blade Runner. And my girlfriend was like, I don't think I've ever seen Blade Runner. Yes. I was like, well then let's watch Blade Runner. So we watched. We like on Friday, we had nothing to do and we just marathoned like both Blade Runner movies, the first one and then the one that came out in 2017 sequel. They're so good. They are so good, but I it definitely I can imagine like living in it right now probably like inhibits your ability to enjoy them <laughs> to some extent. You're like, it's too bad the future isn't that cool. Like we have like 
We have like right. all the pollution <laughs> and like not any flying cars. Somebody dropped the ball on that. I know the first Blade Runner takes place in 2019 and they're like flying around and uh, we're not rocking that yet. So no, like Back to the Future 2 also let us down. When was, Back to the Future 2 took place in, in what, like 2010 or something or 15? 2015. Yeah. yeah. We blew it. I know, man. It's actually kind of sweet because it just means that people were very optimistic. Right? <laughs> yeah. That would be like if we were like, um, what would the example be? If we were like, yeah, we will have stopped climate change by 2022. <laughs> like, I wish we were oh, that uh, oh uh, proficient. I mean, what, that's kind of where I want to start with you. I mean, this year must be so insane for you for so many reasons. I mean, you go from sweeping the Grammys, performing at the Oscars to like six weeks later being confined to your home. I mean, what was what was that adjustment like? I, was that like, you know, whiplash? It was super weird. I mean, you know, on one hand, I think like I feel very privileged to have had a, a very enjoyable first two months of the year before everything kind of like collapsed in on itself. The lucky thing <laughs> is that in if I'm lucky enough to live this long, 20 years from now, I will be like looking back at 2020 and I'll be like, yeah, that was a weird period. But obviously, like these these seminal moments in my life also took place that year. And aren't I lucky? I don't think I'll I'll remember only the terrible things, which Obviously, there are so many terrible things to remember. So, yeah, I feel very lucky. And uh, and you know what? Like, yeah. on a, a, another very selfish level, like, at least we had been touring the world for, you know, three years straight when everything came to a halt. I think if we were only just starting, it would be very devastating. At least we know what it's like and we know what we have to look forward to in, you know, a year or so time when, you know, maybe it's safe to go play arenas again. But, yeah, I mean, it's... It sucks. Yes. I mean, we, you know, we love touring. We love traveling. It's, it's one of our favorite things in the world. So it's pretty torturous to not get to do that. With most of the people I have on the show, I ask, you know, well, you're in lockdown. How's, how's working from home been like affected your creative process? It must be so different. But I imagine for you, it's probably not the biggest change in the world. No, it's been, I mean, like, to be totally honest, it's been and like in terms of like making Billy's second album, making my first album, it's been awesome. You know, like I know that's kind of crazy to say, but like there's no way we'd be writing and recording as much this year otherwise. So I'm trying to look at it like I'm kind of trying to look at it like we have this thing that no artist ever gets. Basically, here's the deal. Every artist makes a first album. And then if it's successful, they tour it into oblivion. And then they're somehow expected to like have made album two in that time, which is just kind of crazy. I mean, our version of that was that we made the James Bond song on tour. But it's like we have this crazy luxury of like having this amount of time off after the first album that I think almost no artist gets anymore. So I'm kind of like I'm playing like mind games with myself where I'm like, as soon as there is a vaccine and everything can start up again. Like you're, you're never going to get a break ever again because everyone's going to be trying to make up for two years within the span of like six months. So I'm kind of like pretending this is like some short term forced hiatus or something where we're just like, we have to make this next record. And I'm really enjoying making it. I'm, I'm loving all the songs we're writing. It's really fun. So you're feeling productive. That's good. I, mean, I feel like it, I know people on both sides of that. They're either like, I, I'm just really on it or it's like, I can barely get out of bed. Please don't make me do an entire I mean, album. It's, 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 it's day by day. I should remind you that earlier in this call, I admitted to watching both Blade Runner <laughs> movies on Friday. And I also, 
I, that same day, I watched like an hour and a half behind the scenes of The Social Network. And also I watched an episode of The Boys. So it was like, you know, there there are days where I am super prolific. And then there are days where I watched like three movies. Well, you gotta, you gotta, you know, prime the pump, I guess. Ebb and flow. Yeah. Well, tell me about your new song, What They'll Say About Us. It seems, you know, I, I get a lot of hope in that song, which is not something we, we get a lot of this year. You know, um, that's definitely what I was aiming for. I think, I think, I mean, there are other songs that may never see the light of day that I wrote during this that are just dirges. They're just like bleak. This sucks. You know, that's kind of the MO. And I think the reason I felt so proud of this song was I, I wrote it during the Black Lives Matter protests in June and I was like going to them and it was like it was like the only thing that I could justify going out and doing like I still haven't been out to like eat at a restaurant or anything it just seems too too irresponsible I see my family my parents are in their 60s whatever but I was like you know what I have to go to these protests and and if if that jeopardizes my health I'll you know I'll quarantine for two weeks whatever I'll, I'll take the hit because these protests are important and whenever I go to protests I feel really hopeful gone to marches my whole life in LA. We marched against the Iraq war and we went to the women's march and the March for Our Lives in 2018 in Boston. And the marches make me feel really good because you're like marching down the street with all these people who agree with you. And I think the internet at its best is like this empathy machine where we see people you know, suffering and we feel bad for them even though we don't know them. And at its worst, it's this like device of division where we're like just seeing everybody that disagrees with us about everything and it's you're just like oh my god how do i disagree so fundamentally with this person that otherwise isn't that different than i am we grew up in the same place you know it's kind of crazy so anyway protests make me feel really good and i'd come home and i'd sort of started this thing this this kind of hopeful piece but at the same time, I was following Amanda Klutz, who's uh, the wife of Nick Cordero, who at the time was dying of COVID in the hospital or dying of, you know, whatever they call it, complications due to COVID, where his lungs had been obliterated by the virus. And so I was like singing kind of in the vein of like, maybe maybe he's going to be OK. And like, wouldn't that be great? And if you were the, the, the loved one of a person who was lying in a hospital bed and you were kind of explaining all the protests and everything, you know, what you might say. And so that was kind of the the nut of that song. And then everything beyond that was was just sort of like trying to be as self-aware of it as possible. I find I find some songs that are like optimistic to be sort of hard to take. So there's like a line in the second verse that's like, if I say a cliche, it's because I mean it. And I think that's like the whole kind of nature of, of a song like that is like, you are saying this thing that might seem a little bit foolhardy or a little bit like blind, but it's like, I think I think to be optimistic is to be aware of negative things that are happening and to be like, you know what, I'm still going to be hopeful and I'm still going to like root for us. I have not yet resorted to nihilism, which is the next the next state of the 2021. Everyone treats 2020 like it's this bad year. I'm like 2021 is the nihilist year. That's like the year where we're all just like, never mind. It's never going to go away. And you performed at the DNC in August. I mean, that must be an incredible thing to, to lend your voice to. You know, it was a we saw it as a good opportunity to throw weight. You know, I think this is a really important election and. I think anybody who doesn't think this is an important election is is privileged and not paying much attention. And we were just like, we'd love to make whatever small amount of difference we can try to make would be useful. I think we were just like the option of like looking back at this period and having done nothing is like very grim to me. So how do you balance with all this going with being so aware of what's going on in the world? How do you how do you find a good work life balance in the midst of all that? I know that sounds like a very that's sort of trite question, but I think it's something a lot of people are dealing with. 
It's super hard. I've like put those like app limits on my phone of like the Instagram, Twitter, social media, like screen time limits where your phone just kind of like shuts you out. And I, that's a, a struggle. You know, I think, I think it's really challenging. The thing that I, I try to remind myself is that in my specific case, my work is the thing that brings me fulfillment, right? Writing songs, producing them. That makes me feel really good. Looking at the news cycle, although I think it is important, it doesn't make me feel good at all. My joke, and I haven't even tweeted this, but like, you know how on Twitter there's like the categories in the app of like COVID related, sports, entertainment, right? So I don't know if you've checked, maybe yours is different, but the fun tab on Twitter, there's like a fun section. It has one thing right, right. now. And it's like, and it's not even that fun. The thing is like, let me pull it up. It's like bizarre. You're just like, this isn't even fun. Here, I'll, I'll, I'm opening it really quick. Okay, so the fun tab, it's like three three things. And one of them is just imagine explaining these things from 2020 to people living in 2019. And I'm like, that's not fun. That's not fun. That's still dark. Anyway, so I just try to get off the apps as much as I can because the stuff that brings me joy is like going on walks with my friends and hanging out with my girlfriend and the stuff I can do safely that feels very like connected. Social media, even though it's important, it's, like does not make me feel very good. I don't think I know anyone who makes them feel really good. <laughs> I know. I think the issue is that it is a little bit like a nicotine addiction where it gives you some dopamine. Like you go on, you see some likes, you see some nice comments. Right. And so you're like, wow, like I'm, I am loved and valued. And then it's like, you just spiral off into like looking at terrible articles about the whole West coast burning down. So it's, it's a tricky balance, right? You don't want to turn a blind eye to problems, but you also don't want to ruin your own life by observing. It's not actually constructive to look at something negative happening in the world on your Twitter, unless you're then going to like do something about it. Right. I try to look at it that way. It's like, all right, I, I can, I can indulge in this weird habit of like looking at terrible news as long as I then plan on instilling some form of change. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. 
We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Well, you're working on so many things right now. Does what they'll say about us mean that there's a full-length LP on the way coming from you soon? There's definitely, it's on the way. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm working on it all the time. It was sort of like, um, if I had to answer, I would imagine that that song will play a role in the album. I don't think the album is far enough away that it would not fit on the album. I think it'll be there. But I didn't want to like announce a record or re- release date with that song because I felt like I wanted to just let that song exist. Because I, I really believe in that song. And I think like, I think sometimes when you announce a single with a record, it's like, people are just like, oh my God, like there's a record coming. And, and also I'm, I'm not actually done with a record. I'm like working on the songs all the time, but I have lots of work to do. I've always been so fascinated by the unusual sounds in your records, you know, like a lit match as a snare, or a dentist drill, or like an Australian crosswalk beep in Bad Guy. What is your process for incorporating those? Do you have like an arsenal of cool sounds and tape loops that you draw from? Or do you hear a sound in your head that you know you want and you just start experimenting with what's around you? Totally both. It just depends on the, the situation. You know, I'm, I'm always looking for inspiration, right? I think one of the issues with... You know, the more music you make is the more you, the things you think you've covered. And anything that re-inspires me is really exciting. You know, it's like, this is a weird example, but like, so, so watch the sound of like the song with the matchsticks. Like that song is like a C chord and an F chord and an A minor chord and an F chord. And like, those are chords that like, I have written so many songs with those chords that they are, they do not carry inspiration for me anymore. And you chuck some matchsticks in there and it's very cool and inspiring to me. And I think that's like, that's what I'm always going for. It's just like something to re-inspire. Have you ever heard of Pink Floyd's Household Objects Project? Yeah, I thought that was a really cool project. I haven't done it, but I thought it was like really smart. Yeah, it's like, because I think that was what followed Dark Side of the Moon too. So it's almost like a similar position where, okay, we we did what we set out to do a thousand times over beyond our wildest dreams and then finding inspiration in yeah. in the everyday. It's fascinating. I was joking with my dad because I'm, I'm really proud of the second album that we're working on with Billy. Um, and I was talking to my dad and I was like, but I'm like, are we supposed to do this every time? Like, are we supposed to make like a really good album like over and over? Like, it's so hard. But, you know, I think that's, it's about re-inspiring yourself and it's about growing as a person like it's a funny thing that people level this criticism of like my favorite artists have changed because it's like 
what the what on earth could they expect you to do as an artist other than change? That's, I mean, that's, that's such a funny criticism that people, yeah, I don't really understand that. I mean, listen to every Beatles album post-1964 and it sounds completely different than the one before it. Yeah, I know, they're so different. I do understand that if you are a fan of a record, that doesn't mean that you're going to be a fan of someone else's record if it's a very different record, but it's like, that's how music is supposed to work. Like, you kind of have to make music for yourself and then whoever likes it will like it. God, if I were always trying to cater to, like, one listener, like, I wouldn't have made, like, half the songs I'm proud of because I would have just been, like, second-guessing them and been like, oh, my God, they're not going to like this. So I think it's... uh. It's a double-edged sword because obviously we're all as artists like very indebted to whoever listens to our music and that's why we have a career. But it's also like I think of this in terms of like food in a certain way. If I only ever ate stuff I already like, I'd never try anything new that's great. And it's like I feel like that's that's the best. And you go to a new restaurant and you try something, you're like, I have no idea how that's going to be. And you try it, you're like, oh my God, it's amazing. And, and I think that's like what I always aim to do as a musician is like give someone something they didn't even know they wanted. And I assume being in your position now, having won, you know, all the Grammys, you have all sorts of resources <laughs> open to you that you might not have before. I mean, you could have a wall of Mellotrons or a string section or, you know, whatever you want. Do you have any desire to vastly right. expand your sonic palette in any way? Or did you feel like you have everything you need with your laptop and, you know, Logic or Pro Tools or whatever? So I spent a considerable amount of money this year on like instruments and microphones that I couldn't afford before. And I think, you know, what I would say to like any young listener who's like, I, I record my own vocals on a microphone called a Chandler Red now, which I really like. And my my buddy yesterday was like, I got to get a new microphone. I was like, you should get a Chandler Red. And he was like, I was thinking get an, an, the, the TLM 103. And I was like, well, that's that mic's fine. And he was like, didn't you record all of Billy's album on that mic? And I was like, yeah, I was like, it's a great mic. I was like, I'm just telling you the other one's even better. And he was like, right, but it, doesn't matter. And I was like, no, it absolutely doesn't matter. It's just, it's a very selfish purchase, right? It's like, I enjoy it. But yes, in the last several months, I've, I've acquired really sort of more, mostly before COVID, but um, I've acquired like some really nice mics and some cool vintage synths and stuff. And like, to be honest, I don't know how to feel about this, but I still like largely am using like built-in software on my computer because it's fast and I'm usually looking for speed, but it is really fun. And again, it's like, it's the inspiration that I'm looking for. I'm not like a super like analog versus digital like convert. I think digital sounds pretty great. I have a couple since I have this thing called an ace tone. You know, I play that and it inspires me a lot. And, you know, in making an, a second album and in making my own first album, like I'm, I love being re-inspired by things um, and approaching things in a different way. So that's kind of like, that would be my like encouragement to people in terms of like what they invest money on and with gears, you know, like wait until you're uninspired by something and then, and then get something new to re-inspire you and re-excite you. That would be my, my advice. Are you superstitious at all? Do you go back to like the bedroom at your parents' house to do the vocals just to get the sound of that room? I am, I am not at all superstitious or <laughs> sentimental. I will like throw away or give away anything. I don't know, man. People let like sentimentality live, like rule like their whole lives. And I, I get it, but like I've never felt that way. The only devices I keep, and I keep them largely because I just know how quickly they're going to seem crazy, is I keep all of my computers. Like I have like my my first computer and my second computer or whatever because they don't take up that much space. And also I just know that like in 30 years, Ooh, it's going to yeah. look nuts. Like we're just going to be like, what is this? <laughs> like the but Zach yeah, Morris not, phone. 
Yeah, exactly. So I'm not I'm not superstitious. People are so funny about the bedroom, man. Like they're all just like, ah, you gotta go back there and record the album. And I'm like, you know, my my mom sleeps in there now. Like it's not my I have a different house. But uh, the only thing that's in that bedroom that I would maybe record is my granddad's old beat up piano. His upright is in there. So I might someday maybe I'll be like, I gotta have that cloudy upright sound Ooh. again. But um it's kind of it. It's kind of a an asinine hypothetical question. If you were growing up in the '60s in a purely analog era where people went to like Gold Star or Abbey Road or whatever to cut records, do you think you'd still be involved with production? Like, how do you think your career would be different if you didn't have the tools that you have on your laptop right now? Such a good question, man. Um, you know, I think I think I am so a product of the period of time where I was born and what was accessible to me. You know, if I were born with the same brain and the same appetites and the same interests, I'm sure I would be involved in music in some capacity, but the level of innovation I've been able to be a part of, I have no idea if that would be available to me or be achievable to me. I mean, it's like, it's kind of everybody, right? Like Bill Gates had access to that computer mainframe at his college and whatever. You know, he's a very smart dude, but like he had access, you know, if you, if you take away his access, no matter how smart he was, he wouldn't have been able to learn it the way that he learned it. So I think uh, there, there would have been amazing things about growing up in the 60s. There were so many amazing musicians back then. And holy shit, it would have been so cool to maybe produce like the Beatles or something. But um, who knows? People love like the time machine stuff. And I, like as cursed as this period of time may seem to be, I want to be right now. Like I don't even know if I want to be in the future. Like I think I just want to be like right now. Well, that's the best way to be. Every, every Buddhist in the world right now is like, yes, if they listen to this. Right. Oh, being in the moment. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. 
Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. You made a Bond theme on a tour bus, I think you said. I mean, that that is yeah. unbelievable. I mean, I, I gotta, I'm a huge Bond nerd. What was the process like for that? That is, Me that too. is just so cool. It was a really cool process. I am also a Bond nerd, and I have I have always looked at doing a Bond theme as like the the pinnacle of film music collaboration. So it was always on my fantasy bucket list of like, wouldn't that be unbelievable to do? And, you know, they were uh, making this this Bond movie and we kind of got wind of that. Not in a secret way. I think it was just like the way that anyone would know that they're making a movie. We were like, aren't they making a new Bond movie this summer? Isn't Daniel Craig doing another one? And uh, we were just like, to our team, we were like, we'll meet with anyone that'll let us meet with them to try to convince them that we're right to do this, you know? So we met with Barbara Broccoli we met with MGM and what we were given, and I think I'm allowed to say this, we were given like a scene of the script. That was kind of it. Like the cold open. Yeah. And um, so we had that. And and that was obviously huge because um, it's so important to know <laughs> what angle you're writing from. And then on a personal note, because I'm kind of obsessed with Bond themes, I was like, has to be the movie title. Like all of my favorite Bond themes are the movie title, like Live and Let Die, Skyfall, Goldfinger. Like it has to be. Uh, That was like caveat number one. And then two was I'm pretty loosey goosey in terms of like what what I'm trying to achieve with goals as a songwriter. But with a Bond song, to me, the melody has to be completely bulletproof. Like, it has to be, like, a melody because it's going to be interpolated through the whole movie. Like, every Bond theme is played by, like, strings and orchestra in the rest of the movie. So I was like, the melody has to be, like, amazing and very Bond. So I wrote all of the melodies first, and then Billy and I set about sort of perfecting like what line would go on each melody, which is very atypical. Usually I write melodies and lyrics at the same time because it's much harder to write a lyric, I think, when you don't have the melody already. Uh, or sorry, it's harder to write the lyric when you have a melody because you have to just like, it's a little bit like Sudoku. Like you have to like just fill in the blanks in this way. So that was, it was this really challenging thing, but it actually from sort of start to finish of that specific song, only a couple days, although there were there were months of like super stress. <laughs> What are we going to do? And and Tony Seiler, who was our champion at uh, Billy's label, Interscope, who I adore. I think Tony's the greatest. He was the one kind of like up to bat for us, you know, and, and wow. he would check in with us. Yeah, it was a it was a stressful experience. But mainly it was only stressful because I just really wanted to write a great song. Like, I love those bomb songs so much. So I'm really proud of the song. 
That's got to be so hard. I mean, to write something that fits the aesthetic, but also isn't a total cliche, too. Like, that's got to be like, right. and, a weird and thing to thread. That isn't done before, like, that it yeah. hasn't already been done. Like, it was a really satisfying experience. It was also a really phenomenal excuse to work with Hans Zimmer. Ooh, and Johnny Marr. Johnny Marr. Well, they kind of are a package oh. deal. Johnny was working with Hans on the whole film, and then Stephen Lipson, like, helped produce the song with us. But it was so cool, you know, because Billy and I are so insular with our own records. It doesn't really make sense to collaborate with anybody because we're just in a room throwing stuff into a fire and seeing what explodes. And I feel like... With a Bond thing, they're like, I'm so glad. Like, if, if they told me to do a string arrangement, I would have been like, let me try to rip off Hans Zimmer. And if they told me to play guitar, I'd have been like, let me try to rip off Johnny Marr. So the fact that I got to just have them be on the record was so sick. What was that great line that Hans Zimmer had? It was like, whenever, he, whenever I get into the studio produce, I, want, I find myself wondering, can I do it again? I, it was something I like that. I remember seeing on his, like, master class thing that he's like, I'm, I'm convinced yeah. I don't know how to do your movie. Dude, he's the... the <laughs> Yeah, every time I every time I'm Do you ever feel every that? time I'm in the middle of producing a song, I'm like, maybe this is the one where I don't know how to do it. Like may, maybe the last song was the last one I'll ever make that's good. Like, I don't know, man. It's so weird. Your brain is your brain is <laughs> dumb. Like the fact that your brain puts up such a fight against like new stuff is just it's crazy. So He's a he's a legend and rightfully so and so nice and so collaborative and so like there was this one point we were doing like versions of production. We were like, you know, version one of production, version two of production, version three of production, version four of production. And there was this version that Billy and I were like, this is bad. And I was like, wow, I'm going to have to call Hans Zimmer and be like, this is bad. And we called him and he was like, it's bad, right? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I know. And, with, and it was like, so <laughs> it was so easy to, I wish to have that little ego when I have won as many Oscars as he has won. Like, I feel like that's like unbelievable. Like if you win an Oscar, I feel like your ego must just explode. And he's just this like mellow, nice guy. Like I just adore him. So I would do, I would do like anything for him. I feel like. I've pledged my allegiance to Hans Zimmer. Well, I gotta ask, aside from Daniel Craig, who's your favorite Bond? Oh, you know what? I really like, I have seen a film or two of the other, of, of Connery and of Brosnan, and I think they're great, but like, Bond is like Batman. It's like whatever you grew up with. So like, I just think of Craig as Bond. He's just my guy. I think, and again, like, n not that the other Bonds weren't great. I think they were, but that's just who plays the role in my opinion, you know? Ah, totally. I think that's like the Christian Bale, Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer thing. It's like, you know, Christian is my Batman until Robert Pattinson is like unbelievable next year. Oh my God, I know. I can't wait to see that. Okay, well, I got to ask you, I've been asking, this has been my last question for everybody. If you could snap your fingers and have everything go back to the way it was in 2019, no COVID, no virus, no lockdown, no quarantine, what is the first thing that you would do? <laughs> so like, like, like fantasy, wake up one day and everything is just sort of like status quo again? Yeah, Freaky Friday style, yeah. Um, really good question. I mean, the things that have struck me are like the things that we take for granted. So I think I would, I'd have to say like play a show, I think. Just the idea, like we played so many shows in 2019 that like we enjoyed them, but it was like we were constantly playing shows. And I remember being on stage in North Carolina, like the day before the lockdown started, where we were like about to go home and stop our tour. And I remember being like, wow, this, this might be the last time I'm on a stage for a long time. And uh, yeah, that's the sort of 
you know, going out to eat, seeing friends and stuff, that's all wonderful minutia, but there is just kind of nothing in the world like being on a stage playing a show. That was a solid answer. Finish, thank you so much for your time, your music. It's been a pleasure. It was great talking to you. Thank you, man. It was really good talking to you. Song Stories is a production of iHeartRadio. The show was hosted and executive produced by Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog with supervising producer Mike Johns. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more from iHeartRadio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.